Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, March the 14th, 2008. Antibiotics and alcohol, not a good combination as most of you know. But these are the main features of this week's Lancet podcast from the issue dated March the 15th to the 21st. But before that, a few other headlines from the issue. We have a four-page special report about the upcoming United States general election. Todd's Willich reports from Washington, D.C. about the three candidates in the frame and what their views are on policies relating to health and health care, both domestically in the U.S. and overseas. Do check out our web focus section of the website for more information and for an accompanying audio report by our North American senior editor, Faith McClellan. In research this week, we have an article about the potential of bioabsorbable coronary stents, another research article about how non-laboratory, i.e. cheap and simple, tests could be used as screening tools for cardiovascular disease in less developed countries, and the Heart of Soweto study from South Africa highlights how risk factors for cardiovascular disease in that population are very much mirroring the risk factors associated in wealthier industrialised countries. And this week's seminar is about mumps. But back to our main features, starting with the long editorial this week. I'm joined by Astrid James, our deputy editor. Astrid, this week's long leader is entitled Calling Time on Young People's Alcohol Consumption. What's the main problem here? The main problem, as we see it, is that young people are drinking more alcohol in many societies than they've ever done before. So, for example, in the UK, in Ireland, in Denmark, and increasingly in Australia, young people are drinking more alcohol than they do in the States, in France, or in other Mediterranean countries. And it's not just the amount they drink, it's the way in which they're drinking that's becoming an increasing problem. So, for example, the frequency of drinking, the amount of times young people are regularly drunk, binge drinking, i.e. drinking five drinks in a row, and being drunk before the age of 13 years old, are all becoming more common. What do we know about measures that actually reduce harm? In the series we published last year, the Adolescent Health Series, there are various measures to reduce harm outlined. The best evidence is in favour of increasing the cost of alcoholic drinks, especially those that young people particularly enjoy, such as super strength lagers, beer, cider and Alcopops. Restrictions on the hours of sale also help. Retailers can do more by having, for example, separate areas in shops to sell alcohol, making underage would-be purchases a bit more obvious. There's also been a steady increase in the alcohol content of some drinks, so manufacturers could do more to reduce or at least not uh, insidiously increase the amount of alcohol in drinks sold. There's also an issue with glass sizes in terms of the, the fact that glass sizes are ever, ever, ever increasing for some drinks. So we know about some of the strategies, if you like, that exist, particularly based on our series last year, as you say, on mm. adolescent health. What is this editorial explicitly calling for? Well, the biggest share and the biggest burden of action must fall on parents who do need to take greater responsibility for teaching their children about drinking safely. I think parents need to create a culture in which alcohol is enjoyed in moderation, is perhaps diluted, as is common in many European countries, particularly in France, and is drunk with food as part of sharing a meal together rather than drunk alone. All those approaches can be helpful to establishing a a pattern of enjoying a safe, moderate alcohol consumption without misusing it. And what are we calling for in terms of action that would be required at a, a government level in the UK and elsewhere, where there are 
problems with uh, binge drinking among young people? Well, the government is due to publish a youth alcohol action plan later this year in the UK. At the moment, the aim of that plan is to improve alcohol education in schools, which is, of course, important, and to tackle parental alcohol misuse, which is also important. But we feel that unless the UK government takes a stronger stance and bans alcohol advertising, substantially raises taxes on alcohol, restricts its availability and also seriously debates increasing the legal purchasing age to 21. A serious opportunity will be lost here in terms of regulatory approaches that can be taken. Would you concede that interventions, particularly at the family level, where often I assume we're talking about quite complex family social structures, are probably going to be more difficult to achieve than, than, if you like, statutory changes in statutory regulation that can be made at the government level? I would certainly accept that it'll take a long time to change a culture of drinking, which is really what is needed here. But it is something that we all need to address and to learn from successful approaches in other countries and adopt those in the UK, Australia, Denmark, Ireland and other countries where young people's drinking are particularly a problem. Our main feature this week concerns a research article which is looking at the use of antibiotics or the justification of the use of antibiotics for the treatment of rhinosinusitis. Earlier, I spoke to two authors of this study, Jim Young and Heine Bucher from the Basel Institute of Clinical Epidemiology in Switzerland. And I began by asking Jim Young to remind us what research has up until now told us about this important clinical issue. There's been a sequence of trials over the last 10 years, most carried out in primary care. In none of these trials has there been particularly convincing evidence that antibiotic treatment is of any real benefit for uh, patients with rhinosinusitis-like symptoms. The recommendation is that that antibiotics should not be used except for patients with severe symptoms. More recent guidelines have shown a sort of a a slight shift in, in the recommendations. And so a guideline that I think will become very influential, written by Richard Rosenfeld last year, in that guideline they recommend a wait-and-see strategy. They wouldn't give antibiotics unless patients uh, failed to improve after seven days. I think it's fair to say then that there's a general shift away from prescribing antibiotics, but I think it's also fair to say that the over-prescription of antibiotics remains a problem in primary care and is relevant within the field of rhinosinusitis. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's still very high rates of prescription. Moving on, can we just quickly clarify exactly what we mean by rhinosinusitis? Is this sinusitis accompanied by rhinitis? And can we just comment on how common this complaint is at primary care? Commonly, sinusitis refers to an inflammation of the mucosa of uh, paranasal sinuses, regardless uh, of the cause. Sinusitis is a condition accompanied by inflammation and congestion of the nasal Mucosa, so that's why the common term is uh, rhinosinusitis. It's very common, most common reasons for a consultation in primary care and also one of the most common reasons for prescription of, of antibiotics. And the main reason, again, is that we do not have diagnostic means in primary care that are uh, easily available and cheap and that allow for a straightforward diagnosis. This is the main reason for overprescription for this condition in primary care. And what were the objectives of the current study? Can you just summarise briefly the methodology here before we go in and and discuss the analysis? I really had two objectives in in carrying out the analysis. The first was to measure the benefit 
of antibiotics for the sort of patients who come into primary care with rhinosinus-like symptoms. This has been done before, but in previous analyses, people have included trials where patients were recruited, at least in part on the basis of imaging or blood tests or bacteria culture, and these diagnostic methods aren't really suitable for a primary care setting, or they're not cost-effective. And so what I wanted to see there is if we just restricted um, our analysis to trials where patients were clinically diagnosed, if we just look at those patients, you know, does, does treatment with antibiotics have any benefit? And the second goal was to look to see if we could isolate some subgroup of patients for whom treatment with antibiotics had you know, a real appreciable clinical benefit. If antibiotics don't work in general for these patients, there is a, a small subgroup there for whom antibiotic treatment really works. And, and so that was you know, the second and, and probably the more important goal um, because that sort of objective can really only be met by um, analysing individual patient data rather than just a summary of each trial. Sure, you've touched on this. So it's a reanalysis of previous trials, what we call also a meta-analysis. Can you just comment on the number of trials and the total number of patients' data that were collected? There were 10 trials that were relevant. We could get data for nine of these, and that gave us individual patient data for about 2,500 patients. And let's talk about those results. And if you would, please explain this NNT number needed to treat a measurement that you use. Treatment's only going to work for some patients. And, and the number of number needed to treat is the number of new patients that you, you would have to treat on average before one additional patient is cured at the end of, say, a future trial. A high number is a bad thing. And what we found is that we would need to treat some 15 patients with rhinosinitis-like symptoms before we'd get one additional patient benefiting from treatment. Is 15 a large number then? You've got to have 15 patients, you've got to treat all of them. It's costly, um, there's adverse effects associated with treatment and then in a general sense bacterial resistance. It's hard to see how you could say that treatment's justified in this situation. Did you find any benefit in terms of subgroup analysis because one of your objectives that you stated earlier was to see whether there was of a specific subpopulation of patients who could benefit from antibiotic treatment? Yes and no. We can draw some conclusions there for some of the subgroups we were interested in and not all. These results show that patients reporting symptoms for longer and patients reporting more severe symptoms and older patients all take longer to cure but antibiotics offers no additional benefit for such patients than for other patients. We did find, however, that patients who have phlegm-like discharge in the throat seem to take longer to cure and antibiotics seem to be more beneficial for these patients. Can we move on and talk about, finally, importantly as well, the, the clinical implications here because, you know, from what you're saying, the data here are pretty strong in, in terms of not advocating the use of antibiotics particularly for symptoms that last up to 7 to 10 days. What are the clinical implications broadly and what about chronic disease, i.e. where symptoms are lasting longer than 10 days? What does that mean for antibiotic use? Clearly, our data shows that primary care physicians have now more arguments at, uh, at hand to be more conservative in prescription of antibiotics. And I think they can, with our data, discuss with the patient and say, look, um, in this case, you know, why don't you wait and continue 
symptomatic treatment. There are some caveats. Our data do not apply to children. They do not apply to immune-suppressed patients like patients with HIV infection or AIDS. In regard of the management of chronic sinusitis, if the symptoms go on for more than four weeks, according to some guidelines, this is a uh, chronic sinusitis. I think you should try to get uh, a sinus puncture to be on the safe side, in particular if these are patients who are immunocompromised. I think this is something one one should do. And also, which is important, if a patient in the first four weeks clearly gets worse, you should proceed to diagnosis by a sinus puncture and treat the patient with antibiotics. Those alarming signs you should treat early. But there are, as we also can say from, from our study, there are these kind of patients are relatively rare in primary care. Heiner Bucher and Jim Young from the Basel Institute for Clinical Epidemiology in Switzerland. Thank you both very much for talking to The Lancet. Well, thanks, and um, have a good evening. I did have a good evening, as it turned out. But that concludes this week's podcast. Many thanks to our contributors and to you for listening. See you next week.